Good afternoon. Um, I'm Christopher Preble. I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Thanks to all of you for coming out today. Um, as always, I want to thank our fine conference staff who help us out so much with these events and help to bring them off without a hitch. Thanks also to those of you watching online at Cato.org. Um, in a 2013 address to the United Nations General Assembly, President Barack Obama announced that the United States would continue to safeguard the, quote, free flow of energy to the world, unquote, even as the shale revolution was already ushering in an unprecedented increase in oil and natural gas production here at home. New oil and gas production technologies, such as hydraulic fracturing, horizontal drilling, and deep water drilling, have already begun to redraw the map of energy production. Because oil is traded in a global market, increased domestic production does not insulate the U.S. from supply shocks and price volatility. But even if the move toward energy independence makes little difference to U.S. national security, changes in the geography of energy production could still have an important impact. Uh, in this major new study, I have the draft version right, in this, this study, uh, researchers from the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin examine how changing trade flows and energy revenues could affect U.S. national security via two potential mechanisms, shifts in U.S. bilateral relationships with oil exporting countries and disruptions in regional security caused by a reduction in revenues for some oil and gas producing countries. I'm very pleased to welcome uh, back to Cato, the project director, Eugene Goltz, and I should all, also acknowledge that we have four of the researchers from UT Austin are also here with us today. Uh, stand up real quick, uh, those of you from the team. There we go, right here in the front. So four of the researchers uh, have, have made the trip from, from Texas. We're very grateful. Uh, but Eugene is here as project director to present the findings which I think you'll find will challenge the conventional wisdom in a number of respects. And then Gene's remarks will be followed by uh, Philip Auerswald and Keith Crane. Let me first introduce Eugene. He's an associate professor of public affairs at the LBJ School, working primarily at the intersection of national security and economic policy. From 2010 to 2012, he served in the Pentagon as senior advisor to the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Manufacturing and Industrial Base Policy where he led initiatives to better understand the complex defense supply chain and to apply the understanding in the budget process. How'd that work out? Good. Making progress. Before working in the Pentagon, he directed the LBJ School's master's program in global policy studies from 2007 to 2010. He is the co-author of two books, Buying Military Transformation, Technological Innovation and the Defense Industry, and also U.S. Defense Politics, The Origins of Security Policy. In addition to being an, ad being an adjunct scholar here at Cato, he is also a research affiliate of MIT's Security Studies Program, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and associate editor of the journal Security Studies. He earned his PhD from MIT. So with that, I'll turn it over to Gene. Great. Great. Well, thank you, Chris. And uh, thank you to everyone at Cato for uh, organizing this. It's a real pleasure to be here uh, and talk to you about national security implications of the shale revolution, basically, of the new oil and gas production technologies that have allowed such a dramatic increase in, um, in hydrocarbon production in the United States. I think, uh, um, well, 
Chris already acknowledged, I want to do it again, the four members of the project team, I hope at the reception afterwards as people mill about, uh, it will help give more people an opportunity to talk to people who engage in this research. You know, I'll talk to anyone who wants to talk to me, but please <laughs> visit with them. Um, uh, they did a great job. Uh, uh, so um, uh, many people have, a, a, have a, a, an understanding or a sense for the dramatic changes uh, in oil and gas markets over the last five to ten years. It, it's, it's unprecedented uh, change. It's unexpected. Suddenly the United States is producing at levels we haven't seen in years. Um, and people for many years have thought oil has a lot to do with national security. We, our national security policy might be, might be um, uh, driven by oil interests in, in a way that um, other interests around the world, oil might dominate our national security discussions. And so they, they've been, been hungering or thinking about, well, something dramatic has happened in the oil industry and in the gas industry. Uh, doesn't that mean something hugely has changed about national security? And there have been a number of, of uh, authors, pundits, who've written in in relatively hazy ways about this, where people have just sort of said, oh, it must be that there's something important for national security. But I, at least, have not been comfortable that people have figured out what would be the implication or be the big change for national security. So this project really set out to try to be very systematic and go through um, clear mechanisms that might provide the link, the glue, that would connect oil and gas production to national security, and, and to find out if oil and gas production have changed, should the American consideration of national, national security change as well? And um, just to give you a little hint where we might be going, um, uh, the answer is that we didn't find a lot of close connections between oil and gas and national security. So the real connections are actually much weaker than people tend to believe. And so the result is there's been a tremendous change in the economics of oil and gas and the prospects for making money in oil and gas in the United States and around the world. And that's really important. But we really should not confuse the economic issue of some people are getting rich, and maybe that's good for American power. It's, since it's us who's getting rich, that sounds pretty good, right? Um, but don't confuse that with a national security issue that really needs to change the way we think about the world. So um, just to quickly review the shale revolution itself, uh, uh, at this point, this, is, this kind of baseline material is quite well known. I, I don't want to go too far into the technical discussion of the oil market discussion of hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling and, and uh, in some cases, deep water offshore. But uh, US domestic production has unexpectedly gone through the roof in the last six years. I mean, this is an incredibly dramatic graph, right? So you just see there's a, a huge revolution. And it's hard to think back almost now that, you know, 2005, 2006, there was a real flurry of fear about peak oil in the United States, that, you know, the world was going to run out. Now you see this, and people don't talk about peak oil the same way they used to anymore. It's just a huge change. And this huge change has been focused on the United States. And it's important to remember the fundamental thing that may be related to national security to the extent that prosperity is related to national security, the fundamental thing about oil and gas uh, about, about this is that we're getting richer. We're getting prosperous in the United States. 
maybe we haven't had the economic recovery that we hoped, but this is doing its part. Like it's making a contribution, right? It's doing the best it can. So, uh, um, so from that perspective, the shale revolution is unequivocally good for the United States anyway. Um, another effect of this, of course, is that as the US produces more, we import less, right? So uh, uh, we, don't, we still import, we produce more, but we consume a lot. And in fact, even the rosiest projections of how much we could produce through the shale revolution don't suggest that we're gonna become a, a net exporter of oil or that, that we won't still import. So the United States is still gonna import some, but we import less. And that, of course, helps us with the trade deficit, uh, helps us with who we transfer American dollars to in international markets because of uh, where we buy around the world. Um, and it changes the, the, the map of international production in a way that, that, that deconcentrates it, gets it out of the Middle East the concentration of oil production, right? So now there's some in the United States, there's some in the Middle East, there's some in South America. It's harder for one particular shock or geopolitical event to disrupt the oil market than it used to be. And, and so even though we're, we're, we're still gonna import some, this is a step in the right direction for American national security. So this is the baseline is, shale revolution is, is good in, in ways that are not controversial for American national security. But it's easy to exaggerate. So even as we reduce our um, uh, imports from the rest of the world, um, it doesn't divorce us from the global market for oil, right? We are still tied to the global market price. So on that economic side that I was talking about, where this is a, a benefit for um, uh, uh, the US economy, because we're getting richer, um, it's because we are now paying less into, to, to buy oil at the global market price, which, by the way, in the last eight months has come down quite a lot, maybe in part because of our U.S. Uh, shale revolution, right? But, um, but everybody puts oil into the same global market, no matter who's producing or where they're producing, and takes oil out. In fact, most people, most countries that are active in the global market, which might be described as the global bathtub, like many people have a, a spigot where they're putting a little oil into the global bathtub, and many people have a little drain, which they're taking oil out of the global bathtub into their country, and everyone, all the oil kind of mixes up relative to that one benchmark international price, right? And, um, these four countries, there might be a few others, maybe on the borderline, but these are the ones that matter. Every other country that is producing or taking out um, is a, has a relatively small spigot or drain. It's just kind of lost in the mix of the global bathtub. Who's putting in, who's taking out, and if one person puts a little bit less in, other people have an opportunity to ramp up and they kind of maintain the global price. There's adjustment through that international uh, energy market that means that through that global market and the natural adjustment of supply and demand in the market, specific shocks in specific countries that change who's producing oil or how much they're producing matter much less for US national security or for the US economy even than they otherwise would. And that's in fact, I'll just advertise again a little bit, Chris mentioned, uh, 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 Cato policy analysis that I wrote 
Actually, I'm not sure he did mention it. He mentioned it downstairs uh, that I wrote uh, uh, eight or nine years ago. Um, that's basically about this argument, about the implications of the global bathtub for energy security in the United States. The market protects us from most possible geopolitical shocks, right? Just because somebody else, if one person produces less, somebody else is producing more, and we still pay the same price. Right? So the global bathtub really solves most of the problems of price in the international oil market. And so price is not what we're going to talk about. That's the economic issue. Could be an important issue. But from a national security perspective, we don't need to protect any specific country in order to maintain the global price of oil. Right? So the bathtub is pretty important for the, for the concept of national security. But what's been happening recently is that there's been a big change in the, uh, uh, what's going on in the bathtub, in the way the bathtub mixes up all that oil into one market. So different countries are exporting more. Some countries are importing or exporting less. Uh, what we see is a big shift as the US produces more oil. The, the oil import demand in the, in the United States is dropping as Asian countries grow their economies and consume more, their consumption is going up, right? So the trade patterns in the bathtub are changing. More trade with Asia, which might include China, might be a particularly interesting country to, to understand their trade patterns. And our trade patterns in the, in the Western Hemisphere, especially in North America, we're trading less. And so we are maybe disconnected from these bilateral trade flows. And just to, to zoom in on that complicated graphic, so not to focus on the more trade to Asia, but on the trade with the United States, you can see um, uh, this shows uh, uh, changes in trade flows between 2011 and 2017. So it's a little bit of a forecast from the International Energy Agency. And you can see uh, in the red numbers, that's the drop in millions of barrels per day that the United States is importing from particular regions of the world. So you can see we're dropping off from everywhere, you know, a million barrels a day less from the Middle East, or most dramatically, 1.3 million barrels a day out of a total of 1.9 billion barrels a day. So a huge percentage drop from West Africa, right? So, so people's fear, given that people think oil is very special in world politics, right? That people's intuition is that oil relationships matter diplomatically and from a national security perspective, you can see the United States is going to have less of those oil-based relationships in the world. And it raises the question, so while we're making money off of oil, are we weakening key diplomatic relationships around the world that might have been supported by our oil trade with those countries? So this is the fear that many people express of the downside of the shale revolution, right? And this comes from, you know, there's a popular uh, belief that oil matters so much in international politics, right? We have no blood for oil. Nobody talks about no blood for bananas um, uh, or no blood for hot peppers. Um, uh, but but so, so generally, people accept the idea that we should have important diplomatic relationships built about oil. And the question is whether we actually do have those relationships. Does declining oil trade threaten America's influence around the world? Or if you flip it the other way, as China has growing oil trade around the world, does it offer China diplomatic leverage? Is it expanding the influence of China of kind of an alternative economic system, an alternative political system, or a challenger to the United States around the world? So that's what we set out to test. And remember, our findings were actually oil isn't that special. 
right? So we're going we're gonna to test systematically for several more slides here whether oil has those effects. And so the way we thought about this is we broke it down into two causal mechanisms that we wanted to isolate and study. So one is what we call the petropartners hypothesis, which says that countries that you trade oil with are countries that you will have a strong diplomatic relationship with. And um, uh, might not need them economically, but from a political or military relationship sense, they might be very important. And um, so you see on the top, uh, even though it's kind of cut through by the, by the television line, um, you see uh, the relationship between the US. If we import less, maybe that would cause our diplomatic relationship to fray. Or on the bottom, this question about the substitute trade partner. If instead of trading with us, these countries trade with countries that we may be a little less comfortable with, the Chinas of the world, uh, could that hurt? Um, could they form a diplomatic or military relationship with those other countries that would hurt US interests? So that's the one hypothesis. The other one, which I, I haven't kind of prepared quite as much in the introduction to this, I realize, but um, is what we call the reduced revenues hypothesis. That as, as the United States has attracted so much interest in unconventional oil production, uh, all the money and the drilling rigs and things like that have flowed to the United States over the past few years, at least until oil prices dropped last year. We'll talk about that separately if you want. But um, as they come here, they can't be somewhere else. So somebody else used to be the bright, shiny, exciting oil play in the world that was attracting investment and was going to have great oil revenue in the future. And because instead, now there's unconventional oil in the United States, that other country's not getting the investment it otherwise would have. And so they're going to be relatively less well off economically. And since what we're really talking about here are petrostates, um, petrostates that are heavily dependent on oil revenue to maintain political stability. They basically live off of patronage networks. They hand out money. They spread money around, and that causes stability. People are very afraid that if they don't have as much money to spread around, the countries could blow up. Right? They could fall apart. This is the, the intuition behind the petropartners, or not the petropartners, the reduced revenue hypothesis, is that petrostates around the world could fall apart and lead to instability, and that instability could bother the United States. It could lead to bad human rights performance. It could lead to um, uh, you know, wars, uh, humanitarian disasters, the kinds of things that attract American attention given the current American national security strategy. So in order to decide whether we believe in these intuitive ideas of the Petro Partners hypothesis and the reduced revenues hypothesis, we wanted to test them using empirical evidence from the past few years. We wanted to see what's happened in particular cases in order to, to draw an inference or to learn to move from the specifics of a few cases where we could clearly see what was happening to the general proposition that maybe trade relationships cause diplomatic relationships, or oil trade causes diplomatic relationships, or that reduced revenues would cause instability in a way that would harm US national interests. right? And so what we wanted to do is we wanted to choose countries to study that really highlight the mechanisms that we were interested in, that are where it's most clear to find out whether this mechanism is actually valid or substantively important. And from that, we would learn about other countries that are a little harder to study, but that we also care about. Right? So we might want to study pretty observable countries, like the ones that we ended up choosing. 
and draw inference to what does that mean for China's relationships or Saudi Arabia's relationships or Russia's relationships. So that's really the project here. And the way we do that to choose the cases where it's most likely that the theory would be true, where, where we'd be most likely to observe the action of the theory, is that we concentrate on countries where there are major changes at the beginning of the causal chain. So we try to find the countries where the trade pattern, the boxes highlighted in yellow here, where the trade pattern most dramatically changed. So countries that used to trade a lot with the United States that rapidly traded less with the United States. Because if anywhere, if the trade change is going to have an effect on the diplomatic relationship anywhere, we should be able to observe it in those countries where it had the most stark change in trade. And so to decide that, we created a top 10 list of the countries that during the shale revolution have experienced the biggest drop in their oil trade relationship with the United States. And uh, so here they are ranked by the um, uh, percentage decline in US oil trade. And then the highlighted ones in green are the ones that we chose to study based on that key factor on the, on the causal mechanism and some other factors that we'll discuss briefly as I, as I go through to, to give you a little vignette about each case. But we, we highlight, our, we studied Gabon, Nigeria, Trinidad, and Angola to, to test the Petro Partners mechanism to see whether it was meaningful. On reduced revenues, we similarly followed this same kind of idea for deciding what we wanted to study. We wanted to study countries that had a major reduction in their oil and gas revenue to see if that led to instability or social unrest in those countries or, or their inability to contribute to regional security efforts that the United States wanted to uh, encourage them to participate in just because they were out of money. Basically, they might not be able to participate. So we really were looking for countries that are real petrostates, countries that are highly dependent on oil revenue in order to do what they want to uh, in international affairs or in domestic affairs, and that experience a big revenue loss. And it turns out that in the 2008-2009 oil price crash, you guys may remember, oil prices dropped from $150 a barrel to $50 a barrel, more or less, you know, plus or minus a few bucks. And uh, that meant all oil producers went through dramatic revenue declines. So we, could have, we had our choice of which ones we wanted to study. And since the four countries we wanted to study for the Petro Partners theory all also experience the big, very large revenue declines and are also very petro-dependent states, very dependent on hydrocarbon revenue. We studied those same countries to test the reduced revenues hypothesis. So to quickly just tell a, a vignette about each of the countries, and in the report that Chris was waving around, there's much more detail analysis on many different points, but I just want to give a telling anecdote to explain to you why we basically don't believe either the Petro Partners hypothesis or the reduced revenue hypothesis. So in Angola, Angola was a particularly interesting country to, to, to study, both because the blue line shows the reduction in US oil trade with Angola, which was quite dramatic. We were Angola's biggest oil trade partner, and now we're like 10% of Angola's oil trade. Like We really fell off a cliff for Angola. And China, of course, at the same time, this was a key one for studying the substitute relationship, right? So China really increased their trade with Angola uh, at the same time. So China is now a, by far Angola's biggest uh, uh, recipient of Angolan exports. And actually, Angola is the second biggest supplier of China's oil, right? It's, it's right up there with Saudi Arabia. Um, Angola also uh, uh, did have the big revenue drop. So um, what actually happened in Angola? Well. Um, the truth is, 
Angola's relationship with the United States improved at the time that our oil trade was dropping. So after about 2007, US oil trade relations with Angola leveled off, and then they started to drop. They started to drop rel relatively precipitously uh, a couple years later. But before, in 2010, the United States elevated our relationship with Angola to its all-time high. We signed a strategic partnership dialogue so that Angola is one of only three countries in Africa the United States designates as a strategic partner. Right? So even though we don't trade with them uh, oil, our relationship got better. Similarly, specifically on the issue of China trade with Angola, China did trade a lot more with Angola. And so you would guess this could be a pivotal case for understanding if China was going to have more influence with Angola than the United States. Right? It could be a real pivot. Um, but there's a very telling crisis that in, in 2008, um, when there was post-election violence in Zimbabwe, there was an incident that people called the, the ship of shame, where the Chinese were, were uh, actually exporting arms to Zimbabwe, despite the fact that the US was going around trying to rally uh, an arms embargo on Zimbabwe. Because we didn't want this ships, including the Chinese ship that was delivering RPGs and ammunition to the Zimbabwean government to repress their people. We didn't, we didn't want them to get access to those weapons. And so we went to uh, African countries and said, don't let the ship dock. Don't let it unload. And, and China, of course, went to African countries and said, no, no, no. It's a ship. You can make money. Um, and so they had a, 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 just a, a, a huge lobbying campaign, lots of pressure between the US and, and, and China. And Angola steered a middle course. Even though they didn't trade with the United States oil so much, and they did trade a lot with China, Angola said, OK, the ship can dock, but it can't unload the weapons. Right? So they were sort of trying to appeal to both sides. They said, well, we don't want the ship to run out of fuel. It can dock here, but uh, you can't sell your weapons. So it really showed that the US had not lost the crucial influence as a result of its decreased oil trade. On the reduced revenues uh, hypothesis, Angola did have a drop in uh, its oil uh, revenue. But the key thing is that Angola broke the chain between reduced revenues and, and instability. Because it turned out that reduced revenues in Angola did not lead to reduced government spending. They were able to keep paying their patronage because Angola got a loan from the IMF. They also got a loan from China. It turns out that, that oil, company, oil countries have access to resources that prevent the ups and downs in the oil price or in their oil production from leading to the kind of instability that the United States might fear. Angola was a good example of that. Right. So um, to quickly go through the other cases, um, Gabon also had an even more dramatic drop in oil exports to the United States uh, and went through this same uh, oil revenue problem in 2008-2009. Um, uh, another major oil producer in the world, uh, well, major oil producer in Africa, it's a medium oil producer in the world, but a country that has, has been important to the United States because it's participated in lots of regional peacekeeping efforts. Uh, it's been a good contributor to what we think of as international stability. Um, but the evidence in Gabon doesn't match the theory's predictions at all. 
right? Um, so uh, after oil trade dropped precipitously, it's been dropping for a long time, but it dropped especially precipitously between 2005 and 2006. Uh, Gabon's diplomatic relationship with the United States actually got better. It was dominated by a political transition. The, the new generation took over in 2009. They turn out to be more pro-American, uh, even though they're not trading oil with the United States. So in 2009, they hosted the a very large AFRICOM uh, uh, military exercise. It was the largest communications exercise on the African continent. Um, they're very eager to cooperate with us, even though they don't trade oil with us. Um, and similarly, we saw some protests uh, at the time in 2009, uh, when, when 2009 and 2010, they had less oil revenue. But the protests in 2009, actually, when you look at the cause of those protests, it's really clearly about the political transition, not about the oil revenue. The people are not unhappy that they don't have money from oil sales. The people are unhappy that the previous dictator who'd been there for 42 years, his son, through a democratic election, maybe some quotes, I don't know, became the new uh, leader. And they actually might have wanted somebody else. So uh, you just don't see the correlation. And in fact, even though the oil revenue was still down in 2010, the political protests subsided in 2010. Right? That's pretty good evidence that it wasn't the oil revenue that caused the protests. Um, Nigeria uh, uh, is probably the country that most people think of uh, first when they think about um, uh, oil in Africa. Uh, we have an extremely rapid decline in US uh, Nigerian oil trade. Uh, Nigerian oil happens to be, from a grade perspective, extremely similar to the US shale production oil. Um, Nigeria is you know, maybe the most important country diplomatically in, in Africa. Um, just on this slide, you see very clearly, you see the decline in US oil trade, but China's oil trade, if what we're worried about is a substitution effect that China's going to build a relationship, you know, this just quickly puts that to rest. Because you know, even if oil did cause diplomatic relations, China's not trading with Nigeria. So we just don't have to worry about Chinese influence. Um, and then Nigeria does provide evidence against the theories, right? So uh, in the Petro Partners case, they continue to participate in Obangame Express, which is a large maritime uh, series of training uh, uh, exercises uh, and operations in the Gulf of Guinea. And even more important, what really drives US relationship with Nigeria is human rights. Nigeria's military has a mixed human rights uh, uh, record. And it turns out that things like the International Military Education and Training Program, the kinds of ways we cooperate with Nigeria, ebb and flow. They go up and down. But the, core, the, the ups and downs of that relationship through military training doesn't match the ups and downs of oil trade flows. What it matches is the ups and downs of accusations of human rights violations by the Nigerian military. Right? So it's clear that something, human rights, dominates oil as an influence in our relationship with Nigeria. We're not dependent on oil for our relationship. Similarly, Nigeria, a country that's known for corruption and looting of its, of its resources, manages to maintain enough money in their sovereign wealth fund that when you have ups and downs in their oil revenues, so in 2008, 2009, when they had a big down, they had reserves. They didn't actually have a reduction in expenditure. They also broke the chain to instability. They didn't, they didn't reduce their patronage spending because they had money lying around. Finally, a quick word about Trinidad and Tobago. Um, so 
we wanted to do a non-African case, and we wanted to do a case that really focused on liquefied natural gas as opposed to on oil, because there's uh, some good arguments we could talk about for why trade in liquefied natural gas might be more sticky than oil trade. So it might have an even greater effect on diplomatic relations. And we see in Trinidad and Tobago a huge plunge in their exports in LNG to the United States and also a reduction in their oil revenues. But again, we didn't find evidence that this changed the diplomatic relationship or led to instability. So we thought this was quite strong evidence against the Petro partners and reduced revenues hypotheses. So um, for example, we have a, a, an agreement with Trinidad and Tobago that we've had for quite a while that allows the US Navy and Coast Guard to interdict shipping in Trinidadian waters. Most countries consider this an enormous violation of their sovereignty, right? But we care about drug trade, and so we say we assert the right to intervene in their country whenever we feel like it. Um, uh, Trinidad maybe lived with that because they were a good oil trade partner, a good LNG trade partner with the United States. And so you might have expected kind of a nationalist backlash, some complaints if they were if they were no, no longer trading natural gas with us, this thorn in their side could have led to complaints, but it didn't, right? So it's a dog that didn't bark, right? They didn't have that nationalist backlash, even though they weren't trading with us anymore. Um, and similarly, they didn't actually experience a big set of instability because it turns out that they were able to shift their trade patterns and to shift to petrochemical exports instead of LNG exports, right? So they were able to ameliorate the reduction in revenues from reduced sales of oil and natural gas in a way that prevented the instability. So what have we learned? Um, well, basically we've learned that there's not much support for this idea that oil and gas are special in international politics, right? So all of our cases, which were chosen to make it as easy as possible to see the connections between oil and gas and American national interests, to make it as easy as possible to observe American national interests getting hurt, well, we didn't see that. And the result is that it leads us to be much, to, to, to a much more confident interpretation of the shale revolution and its impacts on American national security. We know, for all the conventional reasons, that it had positive benefits for the United States. We were worried that it had hidden side effects, but we couldn't find evidence that those hidden side effects would occur. So to wrap up, I'll just offer you a couple of quick implications for bigger countries that, that where it's a little murkier what the relationship might be, but the countries that we really care a lot about. So um, Russia is a country that for many years people have worried about the Petro Partners hypothesis being true. So people have worried that because Europe imports so much oil and gas from Russia that the Europeans wouldn't stand up to the Russians. Like we worried in the Cold War at the time that they built these pipelines, the United States even put economic sanctions on European countries to prevent this dependence because we were so afraid that the Petro Partners theory was true and that they would turn to, they would enter the Soviet orbit or enter the Russian orbit. But it turns out that in all the other countries, the Petro Partnership is often overwhelmed by other factors. And we would anticipate, as we have seen thus far, that Europe would make its decisions about foreign policy on reasons that don't have to do with these underlying oil and gas economic interests, right? They kind of sometimes stand up and sometimes don't stand up to the Russians, but it's based on other factors. It's not based on oil and gas. 
Saudi Arabia is a country where people naturally fear the reduced revenues hypothesis, right? So if it's true that in times when Saudi production goes down a little bit or when the price of oil goes down, that Saudi Arabia won't be able to kind of meet its patronage payouts and will face instability, well, that's a whole different ballgame than if a small petroleum producer faces some instability, right? If Saudi Arabia suddenly took 9 million barrels a day out of the global bathtub, that could be a real problem for the world because the price would surge of oil. So if there were a reduced revenues threat, we would worry about Saudi Arabia. But there's not, right? Saudi Arabia actually has tons of reserves. They have an enormous reserve that they've built up from years of making money off the oil business. And so if in a few years they have ups and downs, if they have some downs, we should expect Saudi to be able to contain the instability. Similarly, we might fear Saudi Arabia especially, think they're prone to this violence because of things like the Arab Spring. We've seen countries in that region blow up, right? But it's actually the Saudi security services that kind of help quell the unrest. Now, as kind of a libertarian guy, I'm not a big fan necessarily of quelling democratic transitions, right? So uh, I'm uncomfortable with what happened in Bahrain. But I still don't want Saudi Arabia to disintegrate. And I am somewhat grateful that Saudi doesn't seem to be a candidate. The last implication I'll offer you guys is with respect to China, right? Because I sort of started saying part of the fear is that if the US trades less, China trades more, doesn't that give China inroads into building an empire around the world, an empire of diplomatic ties? And the answer is, well, it's probably a misplaced fear because the Petro Partners theory doesn't seem to be true. Many countries can trade with China just as they can trade with the United States, and they'll make their decisions on who they want to have a good diplomatic or military relationship with based on their decisions about their diplomatic and military strategy. They're not tied to the oil trade. It's not a strong factor that forces them to enter the Chinese orbit. Now, the last thing is, of course, it's possible that the shale revolution technologies will diffuse around the world. Other countries may get the benefit of this over time. That leads to a different kind of national security analysis. But China, of course, is one of the key countries that people think. They have shale reserves. What if they could exploit those reserves and increase their production? And you see, China imports a ton of oil. They import a ton of oil. Uh, and, and across and gas, actually, across the ocean. And of course, the US military, the US Navy, owns the ocean. And so it makes the Chinese worried that the US has leverage against China. And so what happens if China produces more shale? Well, I think the real answer depends what you think is going on, what China is about, right? So if China is an aggressive country, they're just inherently aggressive, and they get more wealth because they produce shale, oil, and gas. Well, maybe they could be more aggressive. It's not because of the shale. It's the fact that they're an aggressive country, and they have more resources, right? So maybe you would want to prevent them from getting access to this technology, right? That could be one strategy for the United States. But alternatively, if you think the reason that the US might get in a dust-up with China has to do with China being afraid that the US Navy is going to squeeze it because we own the ocean. If China has more of its own oil and gas production, China might be a little less worried. They might be a little calmer. They might invest a little less in 
military capability and naval capability that feels like it threatens the United States, right? So it could be that the shale revolution in China would lead to less tension between the US and China. And if you have that view of China, that China is basically a country looking to get along that's worried, well, then the shale revolution is a positive effect. But again, the key is not shale revolution causes US national security. It's how you feel about China causes US national security. And the shale revolution is sort of a tangential enabling factor. So the overall takeaway from this is shale revolution makes the United States stronger, gives us wealth, and in general, in diplomatic and military terms, oil is not that important a factor in international affairs. So don't panic. <laughs> We're going to be OK. So I just want to leave the last slide up. It probably is going to get taken down for Phil. But there's a bunch more information. We did this project. We have great project team members. And they created a website which has a wealth of background information on how to think about national security and energy that we hope you'll find useful. Thank you. Thank you, Eugene. Um, now let me introduce our two distinguished commentators in the order in which they'll speak. Philip Auerswald is an associate professor at the School of Policy, Government, and International Affairs at George Mason University, where he studies entrepreneurship and innovation in a global context. His most recent book is The Coming Prosperity, How Entrepreneurs Are Transforming the Global Economy, which was published by Oxford Press in 2012. Since 2010, he has served as an advisor to the Clinton Global Initiative on topics related to job creation, education, and market-based strategy. And during 2011-2012, he was a senior fellow at the Kauffman Foundation. He is the co-founder and co-editor of Innovations, a quarterly journal from MIT Press about entrepreneurial solutions to global challenges. He's an associate at the Belver Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard. Uh, and he, uh, prior to joining faculty at GMU, Professor Auerswald was a lecturer and assistant director of the Science, Technology, and Public Policy program at the Kennedy School at Harvard. He holds a PhD in economics from the University of Washington and a bachelor's degree from Yale. Uh, our second speaker is uh, Keith Crane. Uh, Keith is the director of the Environment, Energy, and Economic Development Program at the RAND Corporation, as well as a professor at the Pardee RAND Graduate School. His primary interest is developing and evaluating policy options for addressing climate change. Uh, Crane is also engaged in issues pertaining to U.S. energy production and consumption, uh, China, the Middle East, Afghanistan, and the transition economies of Eastern Europe and the Commonwealth of Independent States. I guess we still, some, sometimes we still call it that. Uh, and he's also written and studied post-conflict nation building. Uh, in fall 2003, he served as an economic policy advisor to the Coalition Provisional Authority in Baghdad. Uh, Phil also uh, was chief operating officer and director of research at Planicon, a Washington, D.C.-based research and consulting firm, uh, where while he was there, he provided analysis and economic forecasts used in over 100 major investments in Central and Eastern Europe. He writes extensively on transition issues in policy and academic journals uh, and briefs high-level decision makers. He received his Ph.D. in economics from Indiana University. So with that, uh, take it away, Phil. Great. Um, so it's not particularly interesting for me to say that I agree with Gene, and I'm glad that he did this work. Um, I'm going to say that this is a targeted, analytically robust piece of work. 
um, that takes a slingshot at a problem that I think we need to take a howitzer at. Um, <laughs> and so my analytical framework is I'm going to compare um, two different versions of black gold, uh, oil and coffee. And I'm going to start with the case for coffee as being black gold. Uh, this is from the New York Times. A student of mine was so excited about seeing this argument, or this this article in the, in the Times, that he sent it to me. Um, and it talks about uh, how uh, the economist Adam Smith wrote much much of his masterpiece, *The Wealth of Nations*, in the British Coffee House, a popular meeting place for Scottish intellectuals, among whom he discussed early drafts of his book for or circulated early drafts of his book for discussion. No doubt there was some time wasting going on in coffee houses. But their merits far outweighed their drawbacks. They provided a lively social and intellectual environment, which gave rise to a stream of innovations that shaped the modern world. Now, this reminded me of a friend of mine, Sabine Mahmood, who started a, uh, a similar sort of place, coffee house uh, discussion space uh, in Karachi. Um, and I'm just going to read a little bit from the case she wrote from our journal. 24 years ago, I fell in love for the first time with a Macintosh Plus computer. It had a tiny 9-inch screen, an 8 megahertz processor, 1 megabyte of RAM, and no hard disk. It was the computer for the rest of us, and it profoundly altered the course of my life. I mean, you talk about American soft power. You know, it's fantastic to see sort of Sabine inspired this way. Um, and, 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 but but her, her, her innovation to create the second floor was really all also about political change. And she talked about how years of military rule, terrible violence, and a range of other events had stripped people of their political will and the desire to be the change they wished to see. And this space was the space that she envisioned, the second floor, was about creating that, 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 that kind of opportunity for people to commute, create, and share. So the argument for uh, oil as black gold really is about uh, mid-20th century production functions. This is directly from Solo 1957, inputs lead to outputs. And so we need oil as a vitally important input to our production. It drives our transportation and so forth and so on. Um, 1979, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. Um, the United States responded in January 23rd, 1980. Jimmy Carter uh, issued a statement that's come to known as the Carter Doctrine. Uh, the region, which is now threatened by Soviet troops in Afghanistan, is of great strategic importance. It contains more than two-thirds of the world's exportable oil. Let our position be clear. And any, an attempt by any outside force to gain control of the Persian Gulf region will be regarded as an assault on the vital interests of the United States of America. And such an assault will be repelled by any means necessary, including military force. We created U.S. Central Command to keep the Soviets out of Iran. This did not go away. Uh, candidate Barack Obama in 2008 uh, made this statement when he accepted the nomination in Denver. Um, For the sake of our security, the future of our planet, I will set a clear goal as president. In 10 years, we will finally end our dependence on semiconductors from Asia. <laughs> Oh, no. Okay, hold on. I'm sorry. I said, uh, for the sake, uh, we will finally end our dependence on potatoes from... I just loaded these. <laughs> uh, uh, we will finally end our dependence on grapes from Chile. Another thing we used to make that we import. No. Oh, no. It was oil from the Middle East. That's what it was. It was oil from... Anyway... Uh, he was not alone. Uh, you know, Sarah Palin, John McCain held similar views. Uh, Richard Nixon, uh, you know, had similar views. 
Um, and even as recently as 2015, uh, you know, we quote this, uh, you guys quote this in your, in your paper, uh, U.S. imports have decreased substantially, reducing the funds we send overseas and reducing our vulnerability to global disruption and supply shocks. This is 2015. It's brand new. This is the leading edge thinking of our national security apparatus. It's just, just freshly in print. It's just so exciting to see. And even you guys allude without question that spikes in oil prices are correlated with recessions in the United States. So what's so special about the Middle East and oil. It's a fascinating thing. Well, one thing that people in the Middle East did in 1973 was they made us wait in line. And we really don't like that. We really don't like waiting in the line in the, in the line in the United States. That is very Soviet, and we do not like it. Um, I'll get back to that. Um, but actually, one thing we've forgotten is the reasons we had to wait in line um, in, in 1973 was because uh, Richard Nixon imposed uh, economy-wide wage, wage and price controls uh, as a consequence of inflation at the time. He was trying to get elected. Uh, and by the way, this gives me an opportunity to wish you all here at the Cato Indus Institute uh, uh, happy May Day. It is May 1st. Um, and, you know, so you can imagine if our current president were to impose an economy-wide wage and price controls, how, how, what that would be greeted with. But in the event, um, when we think about supply shocks, uh, there's one thing that was a kind of a supply-shocking sort of event, which is the Iran-Iraq War. It killed over a million people, and it was the longest sustained military conflict in the 20th century, aside from World War II. Oh, and look what it did to supply of oil from Iran and Iraq. Not quite as smooth as Canada and Norway, but steadily increasing throughout the entire war. I would say that that was a supply shock, and I don't really see much evidence that it disrupted output from those countries. Now, there was a guy, I don't know if anybody's heard of him, he's a kind of obscure figure named Ben Bernanke, um, and he wrote a paper on this topic, and what he found, and I guess he was just making it up because he was just an academic at that point, and then he became a more important person. We forgot about what he wrote, but what he said was that the recessionary correlation with oil supply shocks was due almost entirely to the response, the monetary policy response. It was the overreaction to the supply shock that led to recessions, not the supply shock itself. That's Ben Bernanke, but anyway, you don't have to believe him. Good news, though, is we're about to supply Saudi Arabia as a top producer of oil. That's delightful, and I think everyone's very excited about it. I mean, for the United States to be the next Saudi Arabia is such a step forward for everything that we stand for in this country. Now, let's go back to coffee. Uh, there's another way of thinking about production that takes the production function model that we all learned as undergraduates a little step further. We have inputs, that's the stuff you need to make cookies. We have outputs, that's the cookie you make. But then there's how you do what you do, right? Well, it turns out how you do what you do is really important. My George Mason colleague, Tyler Cowan, just recently posted this to his blog. And it turns out that in a world where five-sixths of what was really capital labor input, uh, stuff you could replicate if you were trying to copy a company, that was five-sixths of value in S&P 500 companies just a couple of decades ago, now it's one-sixth. Five-sixths of value in S&P 500 companies is the how you do it. It's intangibles. It is not the solo model, and it is not dependence on oil or any other resource that is fixed and tangible that creates the prosperity in this country. Oh, and by the way, Apple just, it just, it just surpassed Exxon, this was a few years ago, as the number one world's most valued company. So, you know, by the way, Exxon, Apple, oil, ever heard of you? using a computer in a coffee house, that's the way I spend all my time. Now, since it is May Day, I'm going to go back to that. And I want to remind you of one of the great heroes of this country, Time Man of the Year in 1941. Oh, sorry, I slipped right by him. Uh, 
Joseph Stalin. Uh, Joseph Stalin, Time Man of the Year, 1941. Now, of course, there was a reason that, that, that Joseph Stalin was Time Man of the Year, was because he was helping us fight Time Man of the Year, 1938, Adolf Hitler. Um, and, 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 and it was, it was you know, it was bad uh, uh, corner turned uh, in the attack on Pearl Harbor, so uh, Hitler was out. Uh, Stalin was in for a certain time period. Of course, that turned in the very wrong direction. And then by 1979, the Soviets did what was one of the most monumentally stupid things that any country has ever done, which was to invade Afghanistan. But nonetheless, it scared us enough that we made friends with a group of people called the Mujahideen. By the way, anybody who's a doctoral student, I strongly urge you to look into the National Security Archives or wherever you can get the data on Eliza Van Hollen. Eliza Van Hollen had been at the Afghanistan desk for exactly one week when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, and she spent her her time while she was at the State Department writing memos saying that the Mujahideen were not in fact our friends and should we arm and train and support them that ultimately it would be a bad idea and that's exactly what happened. So I, I had a little slide along the way about uh, our enemies, uh, uh, my, enemy's next, uh, my enemy's enemy is my next enemy and we <laughs> saw that in the case of Stalin, we saw that in the case of Saddam Hussein who we trained to fight the Iranians because they were the foe of the day. Uh, that did not work out particularly well. We saw in the case of the Mujahideen. My enemy's enemy is my next enemy. This is the history of US foreign policy strategy for the last 50 years. Stalin, Saddam Hussein, the Mujahideen, these are not small cases. These are not minor exceptions. These are core to the narrative of US foreign policy for the last 50 years. Now, another thing that we did immediately after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was we needed somebody to work with as we were arming the Mujahideen because we were so worried about the fact that the, uh, the Soviets were going to invade Iran and control oil supplies. So conveniently, there was a general, General Zia in, Afghan in, in, in Pakistan, who had taken control of the country uh, just in 1977. And so we saw an opportunity through the in interintelligence services in Pakistan to support uh, uh, our, our new initiative against the Soviets. Um, now, one thing that General Zia did was he imposed the anti-blasphemy laws which and generally started to convert Pakistan, which had been fairly secular. And until uh, General Zia took control, one of the fastest countries, uh, fastest growing countries uh, in the world. Uh, it was the South Korea of its moment, right? But, but General Zia had a different idea for the direction of Pakistan. And again, he was our enemy's enemy, so he became our friend. Uh, the ISI has had a kind of uh, interesting history since we were its best buddies. And it is, uh, it is uh, well known to all four foreign policy experts that, that, that the, uh, the, the US relationship with the ISI has become complicated over time. Um, Human Rights Watch issued this report in 2011 about a particularly sort of troublesome set of events going on in Baluchistan, uh, where a number of people have gone missing. There is a Baluch uh, separatist movement. Uh, I barely know anything about it. I wouldn't really know much about it at all, except that my friend Sabine Mahmood, who I mentioned earlier, held an event just last Friday, just a week ago. And this was an event event that was going to be held at Lahore University Management School, which is one of the leading uh, universities in Pakistan. But it was canceled, uh, ostensibly, reportedly, I didn't hear this challenge, at the request of the ISI. Um, the event pretty, went pretty well. There weren't too many disturbances. But as Sabine was riding home on her motorcycle with her mother, she was shot five times and killed. So uh, that's the extent of uh, our support uh, 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 of, of uh, well, it's a troubling event, 
And I bring it to you today because I think when we think back on, on how we got to where we are today, uh, the rot is much deeper than we take, it, do we take it to be. And the sort of things that Sabine stood for were, were more central to the values of this country than almost anything I knew, know my fellow Americans are doing uh, 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 today here in this country. So, um, so, so, so with that, I'll stop. Well, I, I won't be able to even compete with that, um, so I'll have a much more prosaic approach to kind of some comments here, um, although I, it was really quite quite remarkable. Nice job. Um, so looking at the piece today, as I looked at it, uh, I spent an awful lot of time reviewing publications. It's a big part of my job, so I looked at it as a reviewer. And um, I really thought that the, that the first... Um, part of it was very strong, and that was to, to test the Petro Partners theory, and I thought the case studies worked really well for there. I would caution you to talk about participating in um, international peacekeeping operations. This is a, mono, you know, this is a revenue generating operation for large numbers of countries, so um, whether or not you participate has less to do with U.S. policy pressures as it is sometimes for revenues for the military. Um, if you choose to revise it, I have some more stronger recommendations for the second half, which has to do with reduced revenues theory. I'm an economist by training, and so uh, here um, I'd like to kind of unpack how I look at reduced revenues. Um, for these countries that produce oil, there's kind of two avenues where you would see a reduction in output from or let's say revenue from oil. One has to do with, as Alaska's experience today, it's a depletable resource, you run out of it if you um, don't find new reserves, you have less there, and so you have to go do something else. Um, most of the countries that you looked at tended to be ones that would be the other part, which is there's a long economic history about what we uh, boringly call terms of trade shocks, but in other words, we've had just had this event over the last 12 months where Prices have uh, fallen from very high levels. Last time we've seen levels of this high was like 1980, down to uh, levels that have been more typical for oil. And so here um, the question is, is then how do um, economies respond to that? I thought you were a little bit glib in terms of, you know, there's short-term adjustments or long-term adjustments. And I would argue a short-term adjustment is when you really don't have to do anything, and then life goes back the way it was. And in this case, you draw down your savings or you make a little changes at the margin. Longer term adjustments is when you have to kind of completely revamp your capital stock or make changes in behavior. And so when we look at um, what's happened over the course of the years, uh, when you have very severe terms of trade shocks, um, you know, there's some big adjustments in the economy, and there's often political repercussions um, as the countries work through these particular, you know, restructuring economy. People get laid off, uh, companies, you know, go out of business, new companies rise, and how governments, you know, handle that tends to have a big impact on, on kind of all the politics, but there are changes there. The question you asked in the paper, which was an interesting one, is, so um, if you look at it from a terms of trade shock and let's say from a long-term change, uh, what does that have to do with the shale revolution? And here I took a little bit of issue um, 
When oil is over $100 a barrel, people look for oil everywhere. And um, I, we tend to have kind of a US-centric view that it's all oil shale. It's not. We had big increases in Iraq production. Again, it's a depletable resource. So you know, the um, North Sea fields have been in decline. They're going back up. People were doing, Brazil was drilling. I mean, at those prices, people were out there looking for oil for everywhere. So the, you had a supply effect. And then another effect that I think people um, also don't catch on is that there has been a massive change on the demand side. And in the United States today, we're down at a peak. We're a little over 20 million barrels per day of consumption. We're now down. We were, had fallen as low as 18, 17 and a half. And so that price, you know, the market price that uh, where oil comes at it, it was, is, comes out of the market is both sh shifted by demand factors, not just in the states but elsewhere because of technologies that use it more efficiently vis-a-vis -vis this big supply. So getting back to your question then, um, first, you can't blame it all on shale because it was really a price issue in terms of, um, you know, in terms of the supply side. And then on the policy side, a combination of both CAFE standards, high prices, which have driven consumers more towards higher technologies, and of course, most importantly, the ability of automotive manufacturers to create more efficient vehicles has had a big impact as well. So if you go, you know, if you revise that part, I don't think the case studies really worked because we really hadn't, for most of the time period you're looking at, the 90s we did have that, we've had this period of pretty high prices and what's kind of interesting now to my view is that we're entering a period where um, heaven forfend ever forecasting oil prices, but it does appear that we're gonna, we've been in a period where it's not over 100 for, you know, for a period. And so the interesting question then is, so uh, getting back to the topic paper, so um, when we have a terms of trade adjustment, is oil different? Is there something about um, countries that rely very heavily on oil versus bananas or coffee, or I'm always one for shoes. I think shoes are more important to me than oil because I really don't want to be without shoes. But is, um, you know, is there something different about oil? And here what I think you could do in the paper, at least set it up, I don't think you're going to have time to go back and look at a big series of uh, how countries have ad adapted to terms of trade shocks, but um, is to kind of go back to that, he talked about the, the resource curse. And um, I think it's be useful to kind of drill down to that. Um, in general, my sense when I've looked at the literature is that resource curse has been debunked. What you find happening is that you have some very badly run countries. And so the only thing that anybody can export from those countries and make money out of is one or two products. So it's really the other way around. It's the fact that you have messed up countries like Congo or Central African Republic, and these countries, um, it's so difficult to do anything more. Just um, the market forces result in just one or two products being exported. And I think the counter, you know, the, the counter example here is countries like Kenya or Senegal, where if you're looking at, um, you know, they're not the best run countries in the world, but you have seen a diversification of products and services, especially that are sold 
outside the country as the institutions of those countries work a little bit better. So, so then people have kind of drilled down and asked about oil per se. Is there something different about, because you could kind of, I think the resource part has been debunked. Uh, Paul Collier did some work looking at oil and he said, well, let's get away from um, the endogeneity problem that screwed up country that's only could do and looked at resources and he argued that maybe there's something different about oil. I'm not convinced, but anyway, there's an argument there. But to look at that, then the question then becomes, um, there's two really different um, hypotheses about the oil curse. One is it leads to undemocratic governments. The other, it leads to instability. I think in your, in your hypothesis, we don't really care about democracy. We really care about stability. Um, <laughs> I, I thought your case here is we are fight, but put that aside. Let's just look at stability. I think there you've got really kind of a tough case to make because if you look at um, the countries that really have oil as a large share of GDP, they tend to be very stable. And if you look at Qatar, the Emirates, uh, Kuwait, um, aside from getting invaded, and Saudi Arabia, we have um, countries which have had um, you know, uh, peaceful transitions to power, you have had countries where the current form of government has been there for a very long time. And so I, I think the argument, you know, going back to your case, well, does the shale revolution lead to instability of people we care about? Uh, it, uh, not that I'm sure we care about those people, but in this particular case, it seems like countries which um, produce an awful lot of oil and um, tend to, in some cases, we see instances where they have very stable regimes. Now, um, you know, you can take counterexamples like Venezuela um, uh, or a few others where that maybe is not the case. But if you're going to revise the paper, those are a few of the areas I think it would make it stronger. And I, again, I don't think the four countries per se are, um, they, I think you did a great job on Petropartner's theory. I think on the um, terms of trade effects, it, it's too short a timeline, and it was uh, you need a little bit stronger group. Okay, great. Thank you, Keith. Um, thank you. So um, we did get sort of a late start, and I and I apologize. That's on me. But I I do want to take I, w I want to get to questions from the audience, but I do want to take. Uh, an opportunity to ask one question um, of the of the panelists, especially to Gene, but also from Keith and Phil, and, and I think it might end up kind of drawing together the the two remarks because I've of course been familiar with with Gene's work on this area for some time. He mentioned he wrote the paper for Cato back in whatever it was 2006 or 2007, energy alarmism. But of course, before that, I was also familiar with the work that my colleagues uh, Jerry Taylor and Peter Van Duren had been on the, had done on this, and they in turn introduced me to Maury Edelman. Right, this the, the bathtub thesis. It was great, great diagram. Mm -hmm. So, I have understood for some time the notion of a bathtub and a common market for uh, for oil or pick your resource. Uh, and always been puzzled by the freak out, right? Why do we always freak out? Why do we think that oil is different? Um, uh, 
and, and it turns out, it's shocking, that uh, a basic understanding of economics does not explain the conduct of public policy. Uh, just, just throw that out there. Uh, so that's one explanation, right? That's the easy explanation. Uh, I think the explanation that Phil was getting at is that no one who actually understands this stuff really believes it because it's absurd, right? It just doesn't hold up to the first just the first you know, effort to like scratch not even very hard below the surface. Um, so in that spirit, um, is there something about this paper or, or this context that we're operating in which will allow us to get past the oil freakout in spite of the fact that we've been understanding these, the details of this market pretty well for a long time? So uh, I think that's a great question, Chris. I would love to be able to get past the oil freakout. I mean, I, I've written a series of things uh, suggesting we ought to get past it. But, uh, you know, <clears throat> I, they're, they're, I don't know why the uh, world is relatively impervious to this particular understanding of the separation between economics and national security or economics and politics or how things adapt in the economy and mean you don't need to use the military as much. Um, you know, there are uh, lots of <clears throat> casual explanations that have a certain plausibility to them that um, might or might not make sense. I mean, it's, it's I, like, it, it, people talk about the economic interests, right? It's in somebody's interest, you know, to, to seek protection from the U.S. government, and they may find ways uh, through interest group efforts, lobbying, shaping of media. There are all kinds of things one could point to that might have these effects. Um, I don't know if it's any of those or if it's something else. Um, uh, uh, a lot of that is very... To know, you would need to know very much inside things in the heads of decision makers right. and leaders that we really can't know, even in, in great retrospect, when the detailed decision records are open and available. So, you know, when... Uh, um, oh, when Jimmy Carter, you know, uh, enunciated the Carter Doctrine, uh, right. you know, it so appears would, that he believed it to be true. That's uh, right. Well, yeah. so on that, I would say one other, one other thing, which is the Carter Doctrine may have, have its problems, but it was a different time. And to me, there is a really, there is a dramatic, and you pointed to this stru structural change, right? So, so you could make believe that there was a Soviet, you know, boogeyman, um, uh, and the Soviet boogeyman was real. And the question was, is the Soviet boogeyman in Afghanistan, but is the move into Afghanistan really related to oil or not and you could but there was a real security competition at that time that that made the decision making environment different and you know i guess i would suggest that these kind of the the whole raft of possible interests that might send american policy off the rails today i think have much more are much more it's much more open for them to send american policy off the rails because we don't have the checking Soviet Union. I'm glad the Soviet Union is gone. Let me be really clear. But it makes it easier for the United States to engage in irresponsible 
security policy, because even if we screw up, we're not talking about having to fight the Soviet Union. And, uh, uh, and so, you know, why is the world impervious to logic about oil post-1991? I just think it's we're impervious to logic about a lot of things in international relations, unfortunately, right now. But, but, but it's been a really long time. It's been a really long time, and, and the logic is so weak. I mean, just, just really just scratching the surface here and what we've talked about today. It's just so weak. I mean, I got into this when I was at the Belfer Center. By the way, I'm, I'm, I've, that's, I have not been at the Belfer Center for quite some time, uh, although my formal affiliation there just ended a year ago, so I just have to mention that. But, but when I was at the Belfer Center, uh, uh, you know, early 2000s, post 9-11, this group was very concerned about climate change and, and funding for uh, uh, for renewable energy and there were really two arguments made for renewable energy and one was was the climate argument and there was been so much research and discussion and I mean the climate argument has been so picked apart um, and, and and so you know on that side it's it's almost like an excessive analytic scrutiny of such a thing as possible and then people would make this claim about the, uh, the the debilitating sort of vulnerability of the United States to to oil imports and and I was just sitting there meeting after meeting listening to this and finally I just thought well but why like why why do people keep saying this maybe because I was just a postdoc I was bored I was just like why <laughs> and so then I started like I just started working on it like almost as a hobby I mean I work on entrepreneurship and innovation I mean but I mean it just doesn't hold up it just does not hold up well, and, and, and to be I, clear one of the best things on this I mean just to talk about I mean he won't say it himself but Keith has a RAND report on the you know cost of import dependence of oil in the United States that is largely Debunking well, if you want to look at it, and it's really good. There is <laughs> a piece you. of good work. I, 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 well, no, no, you've written a lot. Is what I mean, you know, we can get to mutual admiration, but that's why we're here together. Yes, and that's I, exactly I do, right. I do appreciate, you know, you're mentioning that, and the pieces. Yeah. I mean, the piece that I wrote, uh, that that where I tried to crystallize this, I tried to title it provocatively so people would read. It's called "The Irrelevance of the Middle East," and I wrote it in 2007. It's in the American Interest, and I haven't updated it because I felt like I did the best job I could summarizing, you know, what I had to say about it. Now I think it is worth updating. And Anyway, it is a real mystery, and it should be an important mission of everybody in foreign, in foreign policy who has some degrees of freedom and who is not already tied into one of these lines of arguments via their advocacy for renewables, via their advocacy for an assertive foreign policy, via their advocacy for oil companies, via their advocacy for whatever it is that makes them perpetuate this really misguided set of analytic uh, uh, assertions. Excellent. All right, well, with that, let's uh, open it up to questions from the audience. Uh, very quickly, please wait for the microphone for the benefit of those who are watching online. Uh, please state your name and affiliation if you have one. Uh, and just in the interest of, uh, you know, the Jeopardy rule applies, uh, form your question in the form of a question, uh, no speeches. And let's try to keep them short so we can get as many in here as possible. I've got one there in the back. And then maybe if you go up and get uh, that gentleman uh, next, I'll call on him next. Yes, sir, go ahead. Vigil.com. There won't be a speech, but I have to draw some information out of a book by F. William Engdahl, uh, Myths, Lies, and Oil Wars. And he raises a question. In the West, we're taught that oil is a fossil fuel, inherently limited, scarce. Apparently, the Russian and Ukrainian theory for more than 50 years is that oil is ubiquitous. It's a, an abiotic liquid, uh, mineral just generated in the mantle of the Earth. They find it drilling through granite. In the West, we're taught you can only find it drilling through uh, sedimentary rock, because that had to cover the 
and the dinosaurs and the plants. Right. So question, your opinions, abiotic or literally from dinosaurs? And, and isn't it a national security issue because since the end of Bretton Woods, we've linked the uh, value of the dollar to the sale of OPEC oil, 40% of world production, only in U.S. dollars. And, yeah, we've... Is that changing? Okay, thank you. Yeah. Is that well, whether uh, keeping the OPEC countries on the dollar standard has been the national security issue. That's a good question. Thank you. Uh, so, I, you know, I'm not a geologist. Uh, I guess uh, I don't think anyone really literally thinks oil comes from dinosaurs, right? There's a timing, there's a timing problem with that. But, but is it old and sedimentary or are there other ways to generate oil? Um, uh, I'm not the right authority on this, but I guess for purposes of thinking about economics and national security, I'm not especially concerned with that geology question, right? So wherever the oil comes from, if the Russians and the Ukrainians can manufacture oil at will or find it in places that we can't find it or whatever it is, let them put it on the market. It sounds great to me, right? So uh, it's just a matter of, you know, let the, let the oil come. On the, on the dollar standard uh, question, you know, um, Selling oil in exchange for dollars is uh, um, has certain benefits for the United States, and certain other countries in the world complain about it. Right? It makes it often easier for us since we use the dollar as currency. So, you know, uh, far be it for me as a national security, U.S. national security kind of guy, more than a cosmopolitan, to say it's not a good idea for oil to be priced in dollars. Like, you know, it has a certain benefit. I would be cautious about the way you talk about the issue, though. I mean, it is an important issue of how do you price it, but, but there's no official peg. You know, you talk about after post-Bretton Woods, we've officially, we, we've pegged the price of oil to the dollar, and that's not true. We just, we negotiate contracts where people price those contracts, and in fact, it's nice for us that OPEC countries price their contracts when they sell not to the United States also in dollars, right? But we don't compel that. They choose to do that. And um, uh, it, you know, as a side benefit, it's maybe a little nice for us. Okay, over there, sir. Uh, thank you. I'm Richard Fulton. I'm with the American Jewish Committee here in Washington. I have two brief and related questions. One is, uh, in drawing lessons from your findings about how we shouldn't be concerned about the, the impact on the U.S. based on the fact we're no longer trading as much with the countries from whom we used to mm -hmm. import oil, you, you therefore drew lessons about Saudi Arabia where there's sort of a parallel, but also about Russia where it's really the obverse situation. There, uh, the, the, the issue is the question of the dependence of Europe on Russian oil, that is their importers, that they're getting an import of oil and not and not exporting it, mm -hmm. uh, and so the que the question I have there is, uh, do you need more information to be able to say that we shouldn't be concerned about European dependence on Russia uh, on that oil, uh, drawing lessons from what you learned about the countries from whom for whom from whom we're now importing less oil? It's an obvious situation. Can you really apply the lessons of of one kind of case to the other case, or or in fact, shouldn't we be concerned about the European dependence on on Russian on Russian imports? Uh, the second the second question has to do with uh, the use of these of the money that's being gotten from oil by the countries that continue to export it. Some of them we know use the money that they receive the petrodollars to do a lot of mischief. In the, in the world, and even if the United States is importing less oil from them, they're still getting a lot of dollars uh, with which to do that mischief. So 
isn't there a, a security interest globally in finding a way to rely less on oil so that those countries aren't able to benefit so much and, 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 and do the kind of mischief they're doing? Okay, thank you. So um, I'm happy to talk with you a little more afterwards. I don't really follow the first question of how it's the obverse situation. So the, the claim that we make is that the U.S. is an importer from a lot of countries, which might lead us to have a particularly strong diplomatic relationship with those countries, to, to, to make nice with those countries because we feel dependent on their oil. Or also, it's a two-way street, they might want to make nice with us because we're who they're selling their oil to. So we would mutually want to cultivate that relationship. The same should apply it's to Europe importing from Russia. Europe might want to make nice with Russia to stabilize their imports. That's the Petro Partners argument. Or Russia wanna, might want to cultivate diplomatic relations with Europe to keep Europe um, uh, trading with Russia instead of importing more from Algeria or wherever. And so the, the, the claim would be, if the United States doesn't want countries to fall into the Russian orbit, right, we should be worried about the Petro Partners theory that Russia and Europe might become Petro Partners. However, because the Petro Partners theory is not generally true, we don't need to worry so much about, about Europe and Russia. I mean, that, that's just the, 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 it is an import relationship that, I'm, that we're worried about. Um, on the mischief with the money uh, question, I mean, in part, this is just a, a question about the bathtub, right? So some people put, have oil and put it into the bathtub. This is not about our particular trade with those countries. It's, some countries make money off oil, and, those and they can make a lot of money. They have sort of free cash flow that they can use in bad ways, and some countries do use it in bad ways, right? Um, and uh, uh, we should prefer if those countries had less free cash flow. So if the world consumed less oil because there was, uh, you know, an innovation to cold fusion uh, to power our cars, um, uh, that would be better. I mean, some countries that actually use the money well would suffer, and some countries that use the money badly would suffer. Um, uh, but, I, you know, but that's a, sort of a different question than the national security connections to the um, trade relationships of the Shale revolution. The shale revolution doesn't get us off oil. It doesn't do anything along the lines of what you're thinking. And I actually love it if Keith would say a word about about this too, because you have a great chapter about, you know, isn't our isn't the flow of our money to other countries helping them do bad things? Well, I, Put you on you the know, spot, uh, but governments are going to do what they're going to do. I mean, we are a net importer of oil still, um, and so uh, from a national point of view, lower oil prices does result in, in a terms of trade benefit to us. Um, but I, you know, to make it a public policy issue to keep oil prices low, um, you know, I think the government has so many other challenges. That's <laughs> kind of leave it. I, I know I think the market does a fine job there. In terms of European dependence on um, Oil, the big issue tends to be more natural gas. Um, it is interesting, however, Europe imports a much higher share of its uh, oil consumption from Russia than it does natural gas. Yes. Yeah. No, it's uh, almost. Uh, well, They're and substitutes. They're better substitutes. Yeah. No, and and nobody blinks an eye. It's really not been an issue at all in Europe. And uh, part of it is it's really more of a Russia problem than a Europe problem because um, uh, Russia. Um, there's uh, two or three large pipelines, friendship pipeline that comes through, 
and for Russia to ship all of its current exports from ports, um, especially if it was unable to use some of the Baltic ports, it, it couldn't move the oil. Mm. And as opposed to, um, you know, Europe, uh, a lot of excess capacity refineries, plenty of oil terminals, um, you know, there's plenty of substitutes out there for Europe if for some reason Russia decided that they were going to cut their nose off to spite their face and right. stop oil exports. On the natural gas side, a number of policy changes have been made by the Commission. And uh, since 2009, there's been a concerted effort to uh, both change legal regulations so that you can, um, you know, once you own the gas, you can sell it to somebody else. There was a period where uh, Gazprom insisted there was no resale contracts, and that's, you know, uh, now in the process of change, but there's also a lot of investment interconnectors and reversing flows. Last year, there was a very detailed study by the commission about what would happen if Russian natural gas was shut off. And, and uh, it's a, you know, there, there are some countries that have more difficulties than others, but uh, it's, it, it was very sober, interesting, and, uh, and in some cases, I thought, reassuring document. Okay. Uh, right here in front. And then two more, time for two more questions. Yes. Swami Ayur from Cato. Uh, first issue, if this oil is unimportant and the United States is going to import very much less and if the main importer is going to become China, then presumably the entire issue of who is going to guard those sea lanes hmm. should shift from the United States to China. <laughs> and China should become the main protector of that particular oil because it's going to affect China, but it's not going to affect the United States. India will hate this, of course, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it does seem to me that there are a number of consequences that come out of, on the security side if the United States says, well, look, this is not an area of interest to me, leave it to China. <laughs> the, the second... Yeah, he knows he is, he's being too cute by half, Swami. important, <clears throat> why on earth is Saudi Arabia a friend of the United States? This has been the biggest spreader of a Wahhabi faith, <laughs> which, if you ask me, has been the biggest curse for a very large number of parts of Asia and ultimately back to the United States. So if oil ceases to be unimportant, why should not the United States completely change its attitude on Saudi Arabia and view it as an enemy rather than as a friend? Can, can I address? I'd, I'd like to push back on the sea lines of communication issue because uh, if any of you have seen an oil tanker, no one in, in current that I'm aware of has, has recently tried to hijack a tanker. They're very, very tall in the water. Um, they are, it's difficult, you know, these things are really valuable. Most of the hijacking we've seen has been for, you know, smaller freighters, usually older freighters, Ukrainian and elsewhere. So, so I, I think it's a little bit, I think the oil tankers could probably go back and forth wherever they go without any, nobody really looks at them or watches out for them. So this, I think there's a little bit of a myth that somehow or another there's a service being provided for oil tankers in particular. So you're agreeing, but so, so do we need CENTCOM? I mean, we, no. That, that, I mean, do you need... Do, the U.S. Navy, vital interest in the Middle East the U.S. Navy is not running up and down in protecting oil tankers. They okay, that's not why they're any there. time that's doing that. That's, that's what they're, they're telling there. us. Okay, that's not why they're there. Uh, well, they, you, you must have a there thought on this, some Phil. Reason, yeah. There should be some reason why they're there. Um, I mean, um, I, you know, the thing is, I, I'm, I'm very interested in, in, in um, 
updating uh, my understanding of these topics, which is requires a very rapid update given the changing nature of, of oil markets. Um, but some fundamentals from the old world still remain. Um, in, 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 you know, in the old world, the big fear was that there was going to be a repeat of the embargo. Um, I mean, leaving aside the uh, the fact that Nixon price controls and the fact that uh, you know, I mean, when there's an oil, when there's a uh, orange freeze in in Florida, we don't have long lines for oranges. I mean, this is just so simple; it's hard <laughs> to even talk about, right? So, so obviously, if we hadn't had wage and price controls, we would have had higher gas prices, but not in long lines. That's trivia. But what about the embargo itself? It was an absolute disaster. From this, embargoes don't work. I mean, that's just cartels don't work. That's also intro microeconomics. It's true. And it was a disaster from the standpoint of the people who organized the embargo. The embargo was collapsing well before we diplomatically intervened. And what is it? Say you decide you're going to unilaterally embargo. You're going to unilaterally reduce your... This is a countries that depend 40% of their GDP as oil exports. Okay? I'm going to tell you exactly what happens. They starve, we substitute. They starve, we substitute. It's a very, very bad policy on the standpoint of anybody who'd ostensibly be... Now, could somebody sometime or other be so stupid and self-destructive to do that? Yes, governments can do stupid and self-destructive things all the time, but they will not last very long, and it's not the basis for a foreign policy. So then we talk about Saudi. Saudi has excess capacity. So what can they use the excess capacity to do? They can push down oil prices. So they're threatening us with lower oil prices. That is not very threatening. There's no threat. There's no threat on the upside. There's no threat on the downside. There's no threat. So yeah, I mean, you're asking really good questions. Really so why, good aren't question. they, why, aren't they, why aren't they being asked more? So, let, let me say one quick thing on the Saudi. I mean, I, I agree with most of what they were saying, but you know, it could be that Saudi is a friend today because people believe the Petro Partners theory and they shouldn't, right? I mean, that's one possibility. It could be for some other relation. It seems like bad policy choice by the United States, right? You, for reasons you suggested, I don't want to go too far down that road, but I, I will highlight there's a brand new Cato policy analysis uh, written by Emma Ashford saying that the petrostates make very unreliable and poor allies, right? It's yet piling on to this argument that, you know, maybe Saudi Arabia is not a country that we should invest too much in. Well worth reading. Thank you, Gene. All right, last question all right, right here. Ted Kassinger, uh, Ted Kassinger with O'Melveny and Myers. So the, the title of the study, I take it, is National Security Implications of the Shale Oil Revolution. The study seemed to focus on one particular piece, which is whether we care about Gabon and, and others uh, because they get lower oil prices and, you know, petrol par partners. Do you ex examine the upside national security benefits of the United States and maybe North America as a whole being the new potentially new alternative secure supplier to the world, uh, which raises, of course, the export ban. And be question. interested in your, your views on that. What's the upside? That's a good question. Is there one? Yeah, well, I mean, so as I said, the, the, you know, the, the upside is uncontroversial and is clear, right? There's sort of nothing to study, in a way, about it, because it is so obvious. And you're right, there is such an upside, right? So the, the United States pays less net cost. Like, if you think that, that oil is a is a highly costly thing to buy in international affairs, even, even at $50 a barrel. Um, you know, we're paying less of that out of our, you know, more, more of the income from it is coming to Americans instead of to other people, right? So that's obviously good for the United States on its face. And the diversification of, constant, of, of, of oil supply, you know, in 1996, everyone was afraid that 
all the good oil was getting used up right in in nice countries stable countries because uh, of the peak oil phenomena they thought oh oil supply is going to get more and more concentrated in the middle east uh, it's the only place where oil is left and there were real hand-wringing about this and now that's obviously untrue right everyone knows that and and so the the there's no controversy about the benefit of having supply that's not all all the eggs in one basket in one area, particularly an area that we may not like some of the people there. He's they may be relatively grim. unstable. Phil, Phil's grimacing over here. Phil, so, Phil. so I think I think I just think your I think your 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 point is exactly is exactly right. There's a benefit. The question is, is there a hidden cost? And I think there's not really a big hidden cost. But they may disagree with me. So right, there, um, uh, Phil will have a better answer than I. But there's a, a really interesting. He was paper. groaning. I don't know if that that elicits a better answer, but he was groaning. <laughs> but Go ahead, Keith. There's a very interesting paper for, um, by a professor from Stanford and from a gentleman from the Dallas Fed. And they looked at, um, so the, the big problem that they trace has been this volatility. So um, not that price volatility is bad, but when you, have, when you have shocks, there are economic costs as economies, you know, there's some short-term economic costs. And so um, they have attempted to quantify the fact that if you're getting it from Canada or the states, the probability of a shock to the to the price goes down, and then they provide some. You know, it's uh, it's kind of you have a reduced risk premium. It's not extraordinarily high, but there are there's a there is you know they they make a good argument that there's a um, uh, a modest benefit from having more secure supplies than in the world in general, in the United States in particular, and and then from more volatile sources. Go ahead. Well, I mean, I we have three views. I mean, if if you if you if you really were in a world where uh, supply of oil was inelastic and there weren't the uh, development of new technologies to extract oil more effectively as price rose, um, then then we would have rising prices. Now, what would that do? Um, well, that would induce uh, substitution. That would induce intensification of investment in, in real alternatives, including alternative infrastructures. Um, oil price rose uh, steadily from 2002 to 2008, um, and um, there was really no change in vehicle miles driven until about 2007. It turns out that after about uh, above about $4 a gallon, people in the United States actually start to change their behavior. Um, and you also started to see a change in terms of uh, the type of vehicles people were purchasing and SUV prices, used SUV prices in particular went down. So there's kind of the structural shift. Well, oil producers don't want oil prices to be as high as they can be. Again, this is elementary. They want them to be as high as they can be without inducing substitution. And so what we've done is we've actually partnered with those who are have a comparative advantage in producing something that we have some capacity to produce, but where we actually have a comparative advantage in producing electric cars, uh, 21st century batteries, and new energy infrastructure. And if we allowed energy prices actually to increase organically, then what we would do is we'd be in a position to be the energy providers of the world in a sustainable, uh, in a sustainable way that actually drove uh, from entrepreneurship and innovation rather than suppressing it. So, so it's not actually good news that we see this boom. It is a short term boot. It's eating potato chips. And eating potato chips is not a way to be healthy. Thank you, Phil. I'm gonna, now, with that note, uh, we're going to go eat some potato chips. Uh, uh, you know. uh, no, seriously, uh, please join me. A hand for our, for our presenters. Also, to the researchers who are here, thank you for coming.